Hello and welcome to episode 11 of season 2 of Riding Unicorns. I'm James Pringle and I'm joined by my co-host Hector Mason from episode 1 Ventures. This week we have Simon Franks, partner at Redbus. After having multiple exits and selling Love Film to Amazon, Simon is now one of the most prolific angel investors in the UK. He also sits on the board of Europecar and has done a huge amount of philanthropic work in Southeast Asia. So it's going to be a great episode. Welcome, Simon. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to be here. I wonder if we could start off with just hearing your background, your career up until now. Sure. Um, Pretty ordinary background or fairly hard up in in my early childhood. And I went to comprehensive schools. Always felt like I didn't fit in. For me, that always made me think I wanted to have my own business. I managed to get to university. And when I graduated, I said to one of my tutors, look, I want to start a business. I've got no money. Have you got any ideas? he said, you have rich family? And I went, nope. He said, do you know any rich people? I went, nope. <laughs> he went, banking. I was like, banking, really? He said, yeah, because you could do a few years in banking, you can make enough money to start a business. And so that's what I did. I applied to all the graduate training roles in banking and finally got myself one. And, and then after four years of doing that, I'd made enough money to start a business. Now, by no means the zillions they earn today, but enough to start a business. And, and that was it. And I didn't really know what kind of business I wanted to start, but I knew I wanted to start a business. And I just want to give you the context. This is in the you know, 90s, and it was a very different world for entrepreneurs in the UK. In the US, there was already a very entrepreneurial sort of background and set scene, I should say. There really wasn't in the UK. Most people thought you were mental if you did that. My father went, you're mental. Everyone I went to borrow money from said, you're mental. It wasn't the times it is now. I started a business, and the first business I started, within a few months, I realized it, it wouldn't work. And I pivoted into something purely by luck, where I, I bumped into a guy called Cliff Stanford, who'd started Demon Internet, which was basically the first way to access the internet in the UK. And he just sold his business to Scottish Telecom. And he showed me these amazing engineers working in the basement who were the R&D team of Demon Internet. And they were working on a, on a technology that, that compressed moving images, which sounds really ridiculous now. But in those days, that was really cutting edge. And they said, look, we believe you can stream movies over the internet. And I was like, wow show me. And we did a big test where they proved to me it could be done. And we streamed in front of lots of potential investors. You know, what some people say was the first in the world, certainly was the first in Europe, point to point with streaming of a film in the 90s. And that led me into the technology world. What was the quality of the stream like? So I remember sitting down with a Paramount executive who was very narky on this point and said, well, it's comparable with VHS that's been used a couple of times. Because if you remember, in those days, you rented a movie in Blockbuster and it was a videotape. And had once it had been used one or two times, the quality was pretty poor. And actually, the truth was, it was as good as that. It wasn't as good as a pristine piece of film. But in those days, we were used to pretty bad quality stuff. Think about cassette tapes, how poor they are. Think about the old VHS and Betamax. So it wasn't great. I needed a lot of buffering. But it clicked in my mind that a computer was a TV. And that was a, a lightning moment for me. And a lot of the businesses that I was involved with then, a lot of them were around either technology around moving images or the actual stuff you put on the moving images. So content, TV and film and stuff like that. And that's the rest is history. And then, of course, that leads into Love Film. I ended up getting a lot of interest in supporting the thing that I was doing. And we ended up buying film distribution businesses and production businesses. And the business that we created is still the biggest film distribution production business in, in Europe, which is, is now owned by Lionsgate. But out of that came Love Film because an executive of ours in business development had been to San Francisco on holiday and had seen Netflix. And Netflix was a tiny business in San Francisco doing just DVDs through the post. And he went, this is the future. And I was like, do me a favor. 
we're a company that was the first to stream movies. What on earth would you send a video through the post? It's just to me, it's ridiculous. And he said, it's not ridiculous because it can actually take years for you to be able to get films piped into your home. And that was absolutely true. If you think about it, that was probably 10 years ago and it started to be a possibility. We're talking late 90s. So we copied it and we originally called it Video Island. We copied it and he had a, the guy who gets deserved a lot of credit who doesn't get it is a guy called Anthony Travolo, who was the guy that originally came to me with the idea. He already worked for us, but he wanted to start this thing. And he had the idea that he could improve the Netflix envelope because he was always getting parking tickets. And if you remember parking tickets in Westminster, they flip back. So you take out the thing and then you put your money in or your check in and you seal it back up. And he said, why don't we do that for DVDs? And so that was his invention, which ultimately was copied by all the people doing that. And then obviously it's a series of acquisitions and Love Film went on to acquire Screen Select, which is Alex Chesterman's business, and then a few other people and then Love Film. And obviously that being a much better brand than Video Island, I don't know what we were thinking of Video Island. And so Love Film really was a amalgamation of lots of great young businesses and it was really smart that they were all put together and could actually compete although i think what happened at the end with amazon was a little bit of a disaster but the starting point was great it was cooperation and great young entrepreneurs all working together interesting so you'd actually seen streaming and then went on to set up dvds being sent in the post because that seems illogical to lots of people and it and it, and it was illogical in some ways. And originally I resisted it. In fact, that the guy, that the business development guy who brought it to me, as that already worked for us, he was like, if you don't do it, I'm gonna quit and do it myself. And I was like, wow. And he's a very smart guy. He set up a great billboard business for us. One of the businesses we own is a billboard business, which he created. And I thought he's super smart. So you should you know, bet on people. And he was really convinced. I was saying, well, come on, we know the technology exists to stream movies. We, will, we have that technology. But he was right because a lot of these things take a lot of uh, infrastructure to deliver. And the truth is we didn't have proper fast broadband into the home across this country probably until 10 years ago. And still some areas have pretty poor bandwidth. And so in that interim period, it was a way to get going. And the thing I really like about it when I think about it was we got to build a brand, learn about customers' tastes. They got to learn about us. We got to show them that we loved film. You could tell we loved film. I still get people saying, oh my God, I miss love film so much. And I think it was a really good way to learn about our customer. And I think that's exactly what Netflix did so well in America, is that they proved to people that they understood film, they loved film, they were serious about their product, and that they cared about what they were delivering. And I think Netflix has never really had any competition until very recently in the US. And that's, I think, because customers really like Netflix. And I think customers across Europe really like love film. I never hear anyone saying bad things about love film. I think it's so often the case that people have great ideas before their time. And we're all investors here and we're all frequently asking ourselves the question when we look at companies, is the time now or is there too much behavior change required for people to, to use this kind of forward thinking idea that should be how things work, but yeah, too much behavior change for it to actually be the way things work? I'm unfortunately the, the, the poster boy for that. If you remember, my business was floating in 2000 for many hundreds of millions of pounds, which 20 years ago was unheard of for a UK startup. And we were raising money to build what Netflix, 10 years before Netflix, it was called Film Group. It, well, we had the technology to stream movies. We had exclusive content in most of the studios. Uh, and the float collapsed. And for me, it was a very heartbreaking experience to not get that off the ground. If you read this prospectus, we described Netflix 10 years before Netflix had started. I, I never, and I never fully recovered from that, I think, mentally. So to start Love Film was a huge jump. But what really was true was that all the assumptions about how fast things would roll out were wrong. I remember paying for a report from a company called Jupiter. I don't know if they exist anymore, but they said by 2004, 100% of the country will have broadband. I'm not even sure 100% of the company have broadband now. I don't know if you can call what I've got today broadband. <laughs> me, me, me neither. I, I, at our home, we have Sky and is very slow. So what I'm saying to you is that your point is absolutely right, that 
a lot of the time it's a bet on is the world ready for this people may love the product but it won't work unless the pipes are bigger and of course when the pipes get bigger as they are getting lots of new things will be possible that weren't possible even five years ago yeah so i'm interested to know so you, you ended up selling love film to amazon you, you said it was a bit of a disaster so why was that and what would you have done differently okay that's just my perception I'm extremely proud to be one of the creators of Love Film. I'm extremely proud of the product we gave customers. I'm extremely proud of the business as a whole, the culture, everything about it was great. What bothered me was when we sold a share to Amazon, we probably weren't as good in the contracts as we should have been, and they were able to creep to get control. And that to me was a bit heartbreaking because it stopped us having the independent mindset and it stopped us challenging Netflix across Europe. We have to remember, we were way ahead of Netflix in Europe. It's, to me, crazy what ended up happening. And I don't even know why Amazon bought it, to be honest. Obviously, they made it Amazon Prime with the video packaging in Europe that you get. But they then shut down Love Film. So obviously, they got our customers and all those relationships, and that's great. But people love Love Film. And, and I just want to bear, bear in mind saying today, right? If you want to watch a movie today, you don't know where the hell to look for it. You're going to have to look at all different platforms trying to find it. But Love Film had it all. We had every film and there was something beautiful about that. Whatever you wanted, we had it. And yes, you might have to wait a couple of weeks for the DVD if you went for the most popular title, but if you wanted anything on the tail, it was available immediately. And I think that's a really amazing thing to have perfect choice all available for you. We've gone backwards. I watch so much less films now because Love Film is gone. Anyway, so lessons learned would be, well, again, I would still say this was early on. We sold it very early. I think Amazon first bought in, I think 2007 or something. You could not raise enough money in the UK. We really should have been able to raise hundreds of millions in the UK and gone out and dominated Europe, but we couldn't. And of course it was a big success for everyone. Everyone made money, went for hundreds of millions. I'm not complaining, but I will say to you, in my eyes, it was, we failed. From an outsider's perspective, it's an enormous success, but everything's relative, right? And in the eye of the beholder in a way. But you touched on a point there, which would be interesting to explore, which is around just the culture. It's something I'm interested in. And I think that, you see most of the great, great companies today, and they have an amazing culture in some way and almost cult-like. What was the culture like that you were so proud of at Love Film? The first business in that sector was the Video Island, and Video Island shared offices with the Red Bus Polygram film businesses. So what was great about it was day one, when we were setting up this you know, DVD through the posting, there were already 50 young people in the office doing film marketing and film distribution stuff and film production stuff. So there was a great vibe. And one of the great synergies was we already had lots of things we value out we could give to Love Film or Video Island. So, for example, there was always a premiere because we had lots of tickets for lots of our customers. There was lots of promotional materials and coming to sets and doing all sorts of things to really prove we knew about film. But of course, we did know about film. We did 100 something films in that time. That was the time of Bendit Like Beckham. So we were producing big British hits and we could leverage off that in terms of relationships with studios. So for example, Video Island had like exclusive content out of Warner Brothers, out of Paramount, had some exclusive content from Disney. I mean, no one managed to get that. We had all that stuff because of these relationships. And so the culture started off in the right place because it was lots of people who were passionate about film. It's much harder to do that in a company in a way sort of Alex has at Kazoo, like just to start from scratch and make people very passionate about what you do. We were dealing with films, so everyone was very passionate already. But when you start from scratch, that's much harder. We already had people in the office and and a vibe. I guess a a great culture is one where you really love your product, you really love your job, 
and you really want your customers to love your project and will do whatever it takes, your product and do whatever it takes. And that's harder to do the more you know difficult your product is. So I'll give you an example of that. I'm on the board of Europe Car, the biggest car rental business in Europe. Uh, our customers don't like us very much. That's my opinion. I've only joined the board in the last six months, but I want to try and change that. And I think it starts with, I go to the desk at an airport and I look at the person working for Europe Car and they don't seem to love their job and I don't blame them. It's not that easy a job. And then you think, okay, how am I going to do this? Because culture really starts at the bottom, doesn't it? It starts with people really being proud of what they do. So we need to rethink our product to make it a product that our staff are proud of. And then when you see that our staff are proud of the product, they'll give better service and our customers will start to think we're actually really good at what we do. And if we're not, we'll really make it up to them if we get it wrong. But it's very hard. So, you know, if you're a window sales business, it's much harder to build a culture than if you're in film. If you're Facebook, it's much easier to make culture. You're doing lots of really interesting things around social stuff. So it's not that easy to build great culture, and it, but your product really can have an impact on it. That's awesome. I'm smiling because about a year ago, I went to South France and I just had the biggest nightmare, like Miss sold me the insurance. It was like yeah. 400 quid, which I didn't want to pay. And anyway, I took to Twitter afterwards because I was like, right, they don't want anything to do with me. They wouldn't reply to emails. This wasn't actually Europe car. This this was gold car. So you're, yeah, you're out, hold the, on, hold on. <laughs> out of the scope. Europe car owns gold car. Oh, really? Okay, well, here we go then. So here you um, finally, someone from the board is finally listening to you. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. And I, I didn't care about the money, but I was like, on principle, I'm just going to keep like, having this argument on Twitter. And then I realised that my Twitter is like, visible to absolutely everyone. And all these like VCs were seeing my little spat with gold car. I was like, right, time to stop. <laughs> it shows passion and principle. Look, in my opinion, car rental is going to change. And we're going to see there's a lot of technological chains coming, change that's going to come for car rental. If the car rental companies keep doing it the way they're doing it, they are all going to disappear. The whole way they look at the customer is wrong. They are car-centric businesses. It's about getting a car as cheaply as they can, letting them use it for a while and then vlog it. Now, you need to reimagine that and start with, okay, what would an amazing, amazing service look like? If Carlsberg did car rental, what would it look like? And that's what I'm trying to do here at Car, is, is start at the, what would the dream be? And how much do I need to charge for the dream? And is that uh, an economic product? One of the things I'll say to you is I hate the upselling. A large part of our profits come from upselling at the desk, but we don't make profits on everything else. And that's because customers do treat our cars very badly. But we don't just we don't discriminate between people who treat our cars badly, people who treat them well. I don't understand that. Why don't we use data to see who drives our car fast, who brings it back in a bad shape, who brings it back late or not? So we didn't do lots of things because a lot of our customers are amazing and look after our car really respectfully, but a few don't, but we group them all as just customers. That's got to go. Another thing is, why do I ask you to come to the desk when you pick up your car and fill in the forms that say exactly the things that you told me already online? I don't understand it. I am on the board of the company, six months in, no one's explained to me properly. It's going to change, I'm sure. So what will happen is you won't come to the desk. Your phone will say to you, hey, your car is parked at Bay whatever. When you get to the car, you'll look into your phone to facial ID you. Of course, your driving license will be on there, so that's all good. Now I don't need to meet you. And your car door open. And now the person who hates their job at the desk is no longer there. And you don't have to spend time queuing up to fill in forms to answer things you've already filled in. But most importantly, you won't be selling you more things at the desk, but we will charge you more overall. What I think we need is transparency. Say, look, all in the car is X. Yes, you can compare us to other people where they look lower, but it's not lower overall. And of course, if everyone has insurance, which they really should do, then maybe people will own up more when they bash cars rather than not tell us about it and give us all sorts of problems. But let me just say this, Love Film was a product which the staff loved and which our customers loved. Rental car 
industry, and this isn't just Eurocast, it's everybody. The customers don't really like the companies and the companies haven't behaved like they like the customers. And I think that leads to bad culture or bad culture caused it. But one way or the other, you've got to create a good culture amongst the staff to create a good culture in the way you deliver your product. How do you end up on the board of, of Eurocar? Do you get approached or do you get recommended or does someone say uh, there's this position open and you apply for it? How does it come about? Well, I don't want to be too immodest, so I'll try and answer this in a way... I get asked quite a lot to go on boards of public companies. And I've always said no, because I've always been an entrepreneur. I've always loved working with small businesses and helping them grow. But I am fascinated by technology and by how technology can really change a product. And the genesis of this is a few years ago, I was with my wife in Florence and we rented a car and had the most dreadful experience. And I said, that's it, I'm going to build a rental car business. And I've always said, I'm never starting a company again. My last one was 15 years ago. I'm not doing it again. I've done it three times. And so that's it, I'm starting a rental car company because it was just so bad. And then I started doing the homework on it when, you know what, the only way to do this is to start with three, 400 million, because actually you've got to start at scale. A subscale business just doesn't work. And then I thought I'd been fortunate in my business life, but I couldn't afford to invest three, 400 million. So uh, I quickly shelved it, but I did mention it to a extremely successful uh, asset manager who remembered that conversation and said, you know, Eurocar has gone bust. We're going to think about buying it but we need someone to totally change the customer. So the two things I'm tasked with, one is changing the technology because the technology is dreadful and two, ch- changing the customer experience. But of course, the customer experience is driven, in my opinion, by bad technology. So if I made the technology good, I'd make it a lot easier for our staff to deliver good service. So it wasn't like, uh, I didn't go for an interview, if that's what you mean, but it's been fascinating. It's my first experience of, you know, I've, the biggest company before this I've been involved with is maybe a thousand staff. This has got 10,000 staff. I mean, it's a big operation. But it's been fascinating and I, I thought I would never do it. I'm so glad I did it because um, it's quite exciting and totally reimagining a product which has been around for 50 years and making me quite passionate. I'm genuinely excited because there is such room for improvement. I'm a massive car fan and so I should enjoy the experience of hiring a new car, trying it out. How about this? I will make sure you get a car rental on us, any car you like, and we'll try and get that product right. Because I do believe we want to do better uh, I think the fact that we didn't get back to you was dreadful. Obviously, I wasn't at the company then, but I can assure you that whoever didn't get back to you will be smashing rocks in the desert of Spain by the end of the week. I'm going to 100% take you up on that. So thank you. You mentioned that your usual bag is startups and you're a very active investor. What do you look for in early stage companies? What really grabs your attention? Well, firstly, I should just give some context for that. The reason why I invest in early stage companies is that I sold my business in 2000, my first business around 2001-2 and made some money at the time when lots of other companies were in distress. And people I'd worked with in, in advertising agencies and PR companies and this and that, technology companies, IT providers, a lot of them were going bust. There were no fault of their own. You guys are too young to remember, but it was just carnage. You can't conceive of it. I think Intel went down 80%. So you can imagine what you know other smaller businesses did. So... I ended up backing or buying a few small businesses because they were friends or people I knew and I didn't want them to go bust. And that got me into the, oh, not running something, but investing in it. Because before my first business was sold, I didn't have any money to invest in anything. So I started doing that. And then when I finished doing the last business that I did, I realized I wasn't going to do startups anymore myself, but I didn't want to become old and boring. And I like being around new ideas. For me, a favorite thing to do is put three smart guys in a or, or girls in a smart room with whiteboards and all day brainstorming. I love that stuff. So for me, investing was a way of staying engaged with brilliant people who were trying to do something. And so my investing, what I invest in is exactly that. I try and find 
people I think are really interesting who may or may not be able to solve a problem, but have a better chance than anybody else, perhaps. And so for me, it's very people-led. It's got to be a business that I feel I can understand. So let me give an exp- explanation. Nearly every business I've invested in or Redbus has invested in, and that's about 60, I think, in total, I think I could be CEO if, God forbid, everyone got the, the flu or, I don't know, COVID. It was out of the picture for three, four weeks and someone had to step in. In pretty much every company we're invested in, I think I could be the CEO for three, four weeks, if not longer. And I don't mean to be arrogant about that, but I, I've run lots of different types of business. And most businesses are, the, a certain mindset is good at running businesses. But what I can't do is go into businesses which are very high tech, deep tech, or, or, or specialized. And that scares me. So I generally stay away from that. So for example, I'm an LP in episode one for exactly that reason, because they're smarter than me. And so I've invested in them because they do that. I don't do that. I do much more consumer stuff, much more easy to understand B2B, but only when I can really understand what the product is and why businesses want it. I don't do complex software stuff. If you look at the things, you can understand any of those businesses quite simply. So it's really the people and a model that I think I can really comprehend, which does mean I miss out. You know, if Google had come to me with this idea that they had to create this amazing algorithm and go and I'd have said, no, not for me. I wouldn't have understood it. But Facebook, I'd have said yes, because obviously Facebook is quite easy to understand. I would have missed a lot of the most amazing businesses because I just don't have the intellectual capacity or the expertise to invest in them. So when you've got 60 businesses in a portfolio, a few funds, what's like a normal day or week look like for you? Well, you've missed the fact that I have children. My youngest is four. So my life is pretty busy, even though I, I like to say I'm, I, I thought I was semi-retiring about 10 years ago. I'm still working most weekends, so it hasn't kind of worked out. My day job is really at the foundation. I was full-time at the foundation for uh, 10 years prior to uh, eight years. I'm no longer full-time at the foundation, but the chairman, we have a philanthropic foundation, which I'm, I'm very involved with and very proud of. Maybe, maybe now's a good time to just oh. talk about the foundation quickly so that our listeners know what that is. Oh, yeah, sure. Basically, when I sold the film business, not love film, the Lionsgate businesses, I said to myself, I'd put a large percentage of that into philanthropy. I didn't have the time to, at that time, to actually do philanthropy, but I decided that if I didn't give the money there and then, I might change my mind and not give it. And it was very important to me. I grew up, as I said, I grew up without, certainly without much money. Uh, and I'm very, very driven by injustice. If I see injustice, it really bothers me. And I always thought I would love to try and do something. So I put what was for me, you know, I'm not Bill Gates, but what was for me, a big sum, I put it straight into it. I created a foundation. It didn't do anything for the first years. It was millions just sitting there. And I said, one day I want to use this money to try and make some difference. And a few years later, I, I started doing that. And I, I said, I'll do five years full time. And the reason I did, I did that was because it wasn't enough money to make the differences I wanted to make. So I realized the money and my brain solving a problem might get somewhere. And, and I'm very proud to say that we are now one of the most influential educational organizations in Asia. We run managed schools in Cambodia, in, in Laos, we also have operations in, in Nepal. We also have done stuff in India. Uh, and we do public health projects around our schools to make sure that the kids coming to our schools are healthy. But what we actually do is manage schools and, and I think manage them well. If you think about UK Academy programming, imagine if all the academies in this country were one organization. Well, in Cambodia, all the academies are one organization. As us in Laos, all the academies are one organization. As us, we've taken that model to those countries and, and tried to inspire our teachers and make our schools great and make them a modern learning establishment, which gives those children growing up in very harsh circumstances a real opportunity to change not just their life, but also the life of their community and hopefully their country. I am determined we're going to have a prime minister or a president or a high-ranking politician come out of our schools, which will mean a kid from poverty that's been educated through philanthropy 
and understands the power that people trying to do good can have will then go on to be a political leader and make a difference because ultimately the only way to make a difference is through politics sadly that must be incredibly fulfilling I wonder if you can talk about how building a philanthropic organization like that compares to building a business. I'm glad you asked that question because this is one of my bugbears. When I was in business, which by the way, I was doing it purely to not be poor. That's why I started my business. And one of the things I would say to lots of young entrepreneurs today as an aside, I know it's all about product and loving what you do and stuff, but also you need to make money. And I think there's still too many companies that don't understand you have to make money. I did it to make money. Now I was very proud of the things we did, we weren't doing blood diamonds. We were making films, but uh, I did it to make money. But during that period, I never did any PR in my life. I've never had a PR person in my life. I had lots of people coming to us saying, trying to do stories about you, this, why about your company? There was thousands of articles about us. When I went to do philanthropy, again, no PR, but this time I was doing something not for me. I was doing something trying to help other people. And not a single article, not a single phone call. No one gave a shit. No awards. I was always winning awards when I was running film, uh, film business. I never won any awards in philanthropy. And what I'm saying to you is, we have very, very strange signals. We tell people, go and do things which are selfish and we'll celebrate you. I'm not going to be a rock star, super zillionaire, entrepreneur, whatever. We are celebrating. Now, I'm not saying they don't deserve celebration, but there are amazing people out there doing amazing work in the field, in philanthropy, international development people who give up so much. We, we don't know who they are. We never celebrate them. They never win awards. There's no articles about them. And so uh, what I would tell you is that working for philanthropy is a beautiful experience because it means you've understood finally, and I was a very narcissistic, focused, self-focused person for way too long in my life, but it means you finally realize that real happiness and real meaning is found in, in trying to help other people. And it is a very, very beautiful feeling, but it's just as high stress as it is in business. In fact, it can be more high stress because we have to deal with governments all the time and it's very, very hard. You know, overnight, the Ministry of Education can change. And like that, you've got an issue. One thing I'm so lucky about is that on our, in our foundation, we're so lucky is that because we have Princess Beatrice, whenever there's a problem, she can be quickly get into action and start working the phones, getting people to listen. But dealing with politicians is, and civil servants is way harder than dealing with business people. So you get a really nice sense of fulfillment, of, of belief you're doing something that's meaningful. But you also get all the stresses that you get of building an organization in business and sometimes more because the people you're dealing with are just not as commercial as normally the people you're dealing with in business. It's fascinating. I wonder if it feels like that might be changing, that maybe there is increasing praise available for people who do philanthropic things, for people mm -hmm. who work on you know, the world's big problems, that maybe, maybe the tide is changing and we'll get there. Okay, that's the positive message. The negative message is we still only listen to those who loud, shout loudest. Now, I, you know, lots of great people don't spend any money on PR, and, and lots of people who are quite average spend lots of money on PR, and those are the ones you hear from. I think, unfortunately, because journalism now has also got its own economic issue, you know, journalists don't have the time to work out what's true and not true, and who's really doing something great and who's not. And so you see people getting amazing honors for being like, fun run. They're just a great PR. One thing I want to say to people listening to this, any people, entrepreneurs who go on to be successful and feel like they want to do something philanthropic, give me a call because I made loads of mistakes. I think I've learned some pretty good lessons and think we've had some good successes. What I really would love to do with the next 10 years of my life is help other brilliant people or certainly more brilliant people than me to use the money they've made and use some time to go and solve a problem. And there's so many problems out there and you can solve them. Problem solving is just like being uh, starting a business. It's just innovation, not entrepreneurial mindset not taking a roadblock as the end of the world, finding a way around it. What you won't believe is there are brilliant people in lots of organizations who just don't know how to deal with roadblocks. Entrepreneurs do. 
It's just something about the way we operate. And so what I would love to see is not a guy who's made a billion dollars giving away a hundred million dollars. That's amazing. But what I'd love, I'd rather he gave away $10 million in five years of his life or two years of his life or one year of his life, because actually it's the mindset, the networks, the way we do things that creates real change on the ground. I, I hope anyone listening to this who goes on to make a fortune, please look me up. I would love to hold your hand and help you on that journey because it's the most rewarding journey. And all the skills you have that made you a great entrepreneur will make you an even better philanthropist. It's quite a message. It's absolutely fascinating. I completely love it. I think it's amazing to hear. James, do you have other stuff? I was going to ask what your week looks like. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. We went on a tangent. <laughs> I mean, it's so great to hear all the different projects. But yeah, I was just interested on how you manage all these different plates, spinning plates. Good people help me manage that. So instead of running the foundation now, there's an amazing woman who runs the foundation and is doing so much better than I ever did. She's probably more your typical manager of a larger of an organization rather than someone who, who goes around breaking heads. We had to in the beginning to get the sort of thing up and running, but it's doing such a better job than I ever did in running the organization. So they don't need as much time. So now it's much more when there's a problem, they call me or when we're doing a strategic review, but I'm not needed every minute of the day, which means I've got time to meet lots of companies, which is why I most of my time doing for the foundation because the foundation also invests in, in startups. So we meet lots of companies, you know, young people starting out or people who are in the portfolio just catching up. The rest of the time is spent doing sort of things like Europe car and, and going on trips to the foundation. Um, I wouldn't say that my day is too full, but it's certainly full enough. And I think that one of the things I realized, I, if I want to take something else on, I'm going to have to give something up. And that's why I think we started to look for people to maybe help us on the investment side, because, and this is one thing just to say is that we never meant to make investing a business. It was what we, I did, as I said, because I love being involved in the early stage business creation and the problem solving of it. But actually, as it's got bigger and bigger, the workload is immense and we keep needing more people. But then once you've got people in a room, then it actually starts to be like, you've got to manage the people. And of course, there's got to be career progression, but it wasn't meant to be a business. It was just meant to be me, Angel Investing. So the day is very full because perhaps I don't have enough people helping me on that side. But I've always resisted becoming a fund. And so there's no career structure. So I've been trying to think about how to get around that conundrum. So I think great people who are on the investment side want to have career progression and not sure how we would offer that. So the day's busy. Did, that, did I answer your question? I think I answered your question. Yeah, absolutely. You did. You mentioned Alex Chesterman was involved with the love film as well. And in America, they have the PayPal mafia. And over here, we've got the love film mafia. Well, there's um, a lot of people. It's a lot of people and they've, they've seemingly all gone on to do very impressive things. You often look into someone in Preston's background and they seem to have worked at Love Film or been part of Simon Murdoch, William Reeve. I mean, there's great people, like, you know, really good people are involved. Yeah. So how important do you think it is that one you met and worked with very impressive, incredible people early in your career? And also how much do you guys all benefit from each other's other successes kind of reinforcing that experience that you all had together. Annoyingly, even though we acquired Alex's company, Alex has gone on to be, be you know, a whole quantum leap ahead of us. The thing which I'm most lucky about is that Alex and I have invested together. I mean, we used to do a day, almost a day a week of pitching. So people would come to the office and like pitch us, like rather than doing it in a sort of very formal way, we'd be like, come in, just have a chat, pitch. Did you ever think about getting the BBC to come in and film? Alex, it's so funny. So when Gloria Monfrini joined us, Gloria was like, this is so crazy what you guys do. You have to film this. 
And I was like, absolutely no way, this could be a disaster. But then it was so funny, they were great. I mean, they were some, so Dragon's Den is such nonsense. It's like inventing and taking the piss out of the inventor. It's so stupid. But actually what Alex and I would do is literally in 45 minutes, either demolish a business, but really in a way that helped them hopefully go off and not do it. Remember we're doing very early stage. We can maybe sometimes talk them out of it or see our light bulbs going, oh my God, this is really great. And you could do this, we can help you. They were amazing. I really miss them. Now Alex is richer than God. I can't get him to do it anymore. But Alex and I probably have, I don't know, 25 companies that we invest, that we, that we funded or that way. And I really missed that. And I definitely think that, you know, obviously Alex one of my best friends, you know, I met him through Love Film. It's a great way to meet someone, right? And obviously in that time we were acquiring his company. I always say we got it too cheaply. He always tells me I overpaid. So somewhere between that is where our friendship started. Obviously there's others. I mean, like William, Simon, they're all, I to ask all of the people, you know, Saul Klein obviously has gone very well. All the people that either either worked, the senior people who worked there or started that. Remember, there's really three companies. There was actually, I think, seven companies, but three real meaningful ones that were in that journey. Love Film, Video Island, and Screen Select. Those, they each had great people. And I can't explain why the alumni of that little bubble has gone on to do so well. But I certainly consider them a very nice bunch of people, very smart people. It was early. I remember that you're talking about the very 20 years ago, and I guess we were quite early in the cycle. And so as the ecosystem developed, people knew us and, and you know, Alex and I have had amazing deal flow since then. Like we're not a fund, but yet people have been sending us decks every day for 20 years because of it. As I said to you, I think people liked the business. And so they wanted us to be their investors. So I feel very privileged. And obviously Saul went on and went on to build, you know, local globe. I mean, the alumni have done well, and, and I think um, I'm not quite sure why, but I'm very happy and, and, and very, very happy to, you know, I'm friends with, with Simon and Will, I'm friends, you know, obviously with Alex. It's great. How lucky. I mean, it's so visible that you are someone who walks around probably every day looking for things that are wrong and how to improve them. And I really relate to that. And I haven't ventured into that world so much of entrepreneurship. Do you ever wish you could switch that off? And given that the answer to that is probably no, um, what does the next five to 10 years entail? That is absolutely a brilliant question I've never been asked before. And it, it's a brilliant question specifically for me, I think, because I've upset and offended and had more people hate me over the last 20 years. And in almost every case, it was totally unintentional on my part. My wife says I'm a bit on the spectrum. I, I want to hear the truth about me. So I think people want to hear the truth about them. My truth doesn't mean it's the truth, my truth. So someone comes and pitches me a business and I think genuinely, this is my mistake. I, I, I don't know you, but I really want you to be successful. And I certainly don't want you to waste your time doing a business that's not going to make it. And I genuinely believe my track record at picking business, not investing in businesses that go bust is pretty good. And so I say to you, in this case, Hector, that business that you've come to me, don't do it. Not only am I not going to invest, don't do it. This is why it won't work. And people have viscerally walked down my office going, he's the biggest asshole. He just totally pissed all over me. Who does he think he is? Thinks he knows everything. And literally, I swear to God, my intention was to save them from making a mistake, to save them time. I always say I could be wrong, but this is my opinion. And it makes me sad. People, I've upset too many people. I stopped doing it. So I, the answer is I have a slightly negative mind. I see the negatives. I've been a better investor in not investing in bad ones than I have investing in good ones. Whereas Alex, I think is a different, is different. He's had more success with some blue sky stuff. I actually would turn it off because I don't need to make any more money in my life, but I really don't want to upset any people anymore. And I still, much less today, I'm not 20 years older and I'm better at it, but I've upset so many people with my tone and, and I genuinely didn't mean to. And it's uncomfortable. If you want to see people, I see the negative truth. <laughs> it's not, people don't want to hear it. 
I don't know, tell me if I'm wrong, but I would imagine that some people take immediate offence, but they probably do look back. Some, some smart people would look back at that and be like, actually, that was a godsend. Like, I respect Simon for saying what he did at the time. I hope so. I think I've also had to go around making a lot of apologies. Deservedly so, because my tone apparently is awful. But I'll give you one example of, of somebody who was on your show uh, not long ago, was Lucas from Lick, right? And I was super happy. So he didn't come to one of our pitch days with me and Alex. Lucas came to a members club that Alex and I used to see people in. And he came and pitched me and Alex at his members club. And we half loved what he pitched and we half hated it. And so we went to Lucas and said, look, we will... First, be your first investors. I mean, we, we think we were certainly the largest, we took the most of the, the early rounds. We will do that, but you mustn't do the following thing in your business. This business had two parts, the paint and another part. We don't need to go into what it was. He said, you cannot do the other part for the following reasons. He obviously was very passionate about the other part of the business. He'd worked in a related business to that. But what's amazing about him was, he didn't say yes, he would agree with us. He said, you want to go and think about it. And he thought about it. And we gave him very good reasons. I thought, why I shouldn't have this other part of business? And he came back and said, you know what, you're right, I'm going to drop it for now. And on what's so great was hearing him on your show was him, he, I don't know if you remember, he, he, he said that we've been very supportive and, and was very complimentary about us. And I was so happy because he's one of the examples of someone who is super smart, super talented, very strong in following his own conviction. But if you convince him of something, he will change. Lots of people won't change it because entrepreneurs get told, oh, the best entrepreneurs, they never give up. They just keep going, which is absolute nonsense, right? The best entrepreneurs know when to give up very quickly. Uh, and move on to the next thing. The great thing about Lucas was he was like, you know what, I'm, you're right. I'm going to focus on the paint field, the most amazing paint brand. And look how good he's done. Okay. That's focus for you. The distraction of having a mark based on all the other stuff that we're going to do, maybe next year, maybe the year after, but they don't need it. They're going to dominate paint, build a great, great company. Now are building a great company. Yeah. And so actually, sometimes people do like the style, but I've had other people where Alex and I have done exactly the same thing and have literally said, those guys are total assholes. I'll never let them invest in my actually discussed this with Juliette Suleiman from MMC Ventures about the, the different types of entrepreneurs and some can be coached and some are just bulldozers but actually it's trying to find that sort of hybrid when they can see the the try line you know the ears are pinned back and they're going for it but actually you can also say well this bit you can let drop or whatever and they, they'll, they'll actually listen. So that's again it's a very interesting area of conversation of the com companies in our portfolio, very few we actually involved in very you know, often. Obviously, we certainly have the bandwidth to do it. But the ones that we are, I spend a lot of time trying to coach the, the CEO or the founders on not specific to the business, but more the way they think about things. I always like the errors I made, thinking errors, trying to get them to reframe problems, just mirror back where they're heading and be sure that they, the person likes the, where, where they're heading. No one knows a business better than the founder in terms of the intricacies of it. But where founders really should get support from people who've been around the block or people who've invested in lots of companies is trying to get their perception on the broader how running a business, building a culture, all the sort of steps about how you deal with people, how you deal with acquisitions, how you deal with fast growth, how you deal with needing, raising more money, et cetera, et cetera, floating, all these things. Because... We can't all know everything and much better to get someone you trust who've made some mistakes and had some successes and had lots of experience and have them give you their perspective. It doesn't mean you, you don't have your own perspective, but it means you make sure people around you have done things maybe a bit older than you bring that experience in. The guys who go, oh, I don't need any of that stuff. I'm just doing it my way. Okay, Elon Musk, for example, yes, but for most of us, no. And you know, I certainly could have done with much more advice. I made lots of mistakes in my career. I could have done with a lot more advice. 
when I started out, you couldn't get mentors. You couldn't get people to spend, invest time in you in that way. Now there's great people out there coaching. There's young guys like you who have learned about so many businesses. There was no one like you guys. Do you know VCs didn't have people like you 20 years ago. That's just not what it was. It was guys in suits who literally had never done anything interesting, really old. Just, it was completely different. And that's what's so great now is now you get people who have invested in seven, eight businesses and are still under 30. So they actually know something and can share some lessons. You know, that just wasn't the case in my day. I mean, it was 3i, you know, that's what was in my day in the 90s. Yeah, it's a very exciting time for the UK in that regard, because now that we do have, I think it's over 100 unicorns now in the UK, it was announced in June. There are people that have been on those scale-up experiences, whether they're founders or early employees or investors, that, as you say, it just didn't exist. Even five or six years ago, it didn't really even exist. So it is exciting. Yeah, no, it, it really is. But there are, there are some downsides to it. We've got to be careful, keep our, being mindful of this. I like to see on every company that I invest in that you have a good VC, but also you have a successful exit entrepreneur, uh, hopefully from more than one company, because I think anyone can fluke it once. But I want to see someone, because a VC to have a certain mindset, which is really valuable, but an entrepreneur who sold a business and has gotten independently wealthy also has a perspective. And I think a founder needs both of those in their ear because there are lots of times where in handling a VC, especially not like early stage, when you're on Series C, Series D, and you're dealing with big American, having a founder who's actually been through that process, an ex-founder being on the board and helping, what I don't want to see is just venture capital people being on board and then clearing out everybody else, which has started to happen. That's not great either because, for example, me and you guys, we've got quite different experiences, you have quite different skill sets. I'm just saying as VC generic people and me as a founder person, they're actually really good together. But I think that what's VCs are becoming so dominant now, you don't really need angels like me anymore. And therefore we're getting squeezed out of of positions of influence with these companies. And I think that's a mistake that companies are going to regret. But I also understand why VCs, they always just think, oh God, angels, get them off the cap table. But there's a difference between Alex and I or William or Simon, you know, on the cap table and an, an investment banker who knows nothing about startups, who's just a bond trader, but put money into it because it's EIS. But what's happening is VCs are clearing boardrooms and senior advisory roles. And I think that's a mistake. You know, I want all our companies to have at least one exited founder who is independently wealthy. So they've been through the phase of not having money and making money. And because I'll give you one thing, which is say to the founders, I've got at least three or four founders in our portfolio who are on paper worth over hundred million, who literally don't have, couldn't write me a check for a thousand pounds. It's not great to have that. And we need to start thinking about how we help entrepreneurs in that situation, because it means you make very short-term decisions. In fact, I remember doing that for Perkbox, saying to you know, these amazingly successful startup, you know, Saurabh and Chu, Saurabh created this amazing business. But I keep saying to them, you know, take some money off the table and let's make, but in those days, secondaries weren't popular. So you'd have these people tied in and things like that. That's when you need a founder to back. So I would, as an ex-founder, I would say to, say to a VC, this is more to the bigger VCs in America, look, guys, we've got to get this guy to a point where he feels personally secure so he can focus purely on the business rather than on his own self. And so things like that, I think having founders around it's important. It's been an absolute pleasure. But before we go, we could whiz through the dinner party guest game that we play. And I wonder if you have three people who you would invite to dinner. So because I always believe in pushing my luck, I'm going to say, I'm just going to shout out very quickly some names because I this is the one thing I thought about before this. So this is my party. Moses, Humphrey Bogart, Schopenhauer, Buddha, Mandela, Ingrid Bergman, and Hemingway. And can I come as well? 
Definitely invited, man. Clean sweep there on unique people as well, I think. So yeah. Yes. The one thing that I... Yeah, that's unusual. Brilliant. Wouldn't it be great to be so famous? I don't mean like pop star famous, but like Barack Obama, where you can invite anybody to dinner and they'll always yeah. come. That would be my dream. Yeah, it'd be unbelievable. I'd have one wish. Yeah. yeah. I could have dinner with anyone I wanted to every night. Be absolutely incredible. No, Simon, it's been truly and genuinely an absolute pleasure talking to you. Really, really enjoyed it. And um, I know that our listeners will will feel exactly the same. So thanks so much. I hope so. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Riding Unicorns. Please do engage with us on LinkedIn or Twitter. On Twitter, it's at ridingunicorns underscore. And on LinkedIn, you can just search for Riding Unicorns. If you have questions that you want us to ask future guests, we'd love to hear from you. Or if you have suggestions for future guests, we should reach out to and get on the show. Please also let us know. Don't forget to sign up to our Substack to get episodes direct to your inbox every Wednesday. Go to ridingunicorns.substack.com. Please also like and subscribe on your favourite podcast platform. Look out for the next episode.